You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Good evening from Europe and good afternoon to our US uh, listeners. This is Alf speaking. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm here today, Wednesday, 23rd of February 2022, with my good buddy, the founder and CEO of 42 Macro, Darius Dale. How are you doing, Darius? I'm wonderful, Alf. It's great to be back on with you, my friend. Let's unpack. Hashtag the macro dream team. Well, actually, we, we named ourselves that. So let's see if we can uh, deliver something decent for our audience today. <laughs> there is a lot to talk about. I mean, we have, we have in equity indices across the board going into red. We have treasuries not being able to rally. Uh, interestingly, the curve is even steepening into this move. And we have oil, gold, and anything else, and Bitcoin trading sideways, choppy trading. I would, I would define that all over the place, and obviously the headlines are all about Russia and Ukraine and the uh, geopolitical tensions. Just uh, as a broad first initial comment, Darius, what would you, what would you say about today, price action? Yeah, so the, the first thing I'll say is, is there's a complete bloodbath in the NASDAQ and tech stocks. Um, obviously, they don't like it when geopolitical tensions are accelerating and you're not getting the benefit uh, of curve flattening, um, you know, out of the long end of the treasury curve. So. And this is something I had a conversation with one of our subscribers on Twitter uh, either this weekend or last week. And they were saying, hey, look, what would happen if they invade it? You know, what happens if you go to war? Do you buy more bonds on that? And I said, you know, maybe, maybe not, you know, because war from this perspective, um, if you think about the reduction in labor supply that we have, not just domestically, but abroad, could actually be more inflationary over the medium term um, in terms of putting an additional tax on the productive capacity of the economy, which itself is already really depressed. Pretty interesting initial comment. Um, yes. So this Russia-Ukraine story is, is catching all the attention, right? And I want to talk about a couple of um, movers out there where people are also looking at that. And um, I mean, one of it is the CDS on, on price in dollar for Russia as a, as a sovereign. It actually spiked up to 400 basis points, 425 basis points, which is last seen if I'm not mistaken, somewhere about 2015, 2016. So the last time that Russia was entering a recession post the Crimea sanctions in 2014. Um, and obviously also Russian equities are dropping and the ruble is trading pretty weak against the dollar. If you look at option markets as well, it's priced to as a 50% chance to drop to the lows of 2014 against the dollar. So Darius, do you think this situation can escalate to a point where it becomes systemic, systemically important or is this more a idiosyncratic story? Uh, no, no, it's definitely not idiosyncratic in my opinion. I mean, when you have you know some of the world's largest economies, and you think about the U.S., Germany, France, and Russia, you know, sort of going tit for tat and and escalating geopolitical tensions, I I, I think it's very unlikely that it it sort of um, is contained. Now, again, I think we'd all be remiss to sit here and start making forecasts as if we have any incremental evidence or an ability or basis to do so. Uh, we're all sort of at the mercy of the headline risk, uh, which in our opinion causes much more of a sort of rush for near-term protection than you otherwise would in a more sort of kind of traditional macro catalyst. And so this is how you can get 
uh, big spiky ball spikes. I mean, you go back to last Friday. Last Friday was a, uh, one of the biggest put ex expiries we've seen in recent months. We lost about 25% of the notional um, exposure in terms of put gamma. And so investors might have found themselves, you know, sort of uh, naked heading into this week. And, you know, this week could have obviously gone one of two ways. It's clearly starting to go one way, which is a way that um, leads to more geopolitical concerns. So, Darius, you're touching upon um, optionalities and the cost of insurance and gamma and all of that. So my natural question as a former risk taker is how would you, um, well, rather than advise, at least look from your perspective to trade choppy markets where the house is about to get on fire, so insurance is pretty expensive to start with, and implied vols and realized vols start to go up. And at the same time, if you want to take the other side of the equation and you want to sell volatility to monetize these premiums, which are larger than normal in these situations, you're facing unlimited downside, effectively, in case the tail risk realizes. So what's your agenda, actually, over the next months to, to trade around these choppy markets and to risk manage? Yeah, no, great question. Lots to unpack. So I'll kind of break it up in pieces uh, to be a little bit more uh, cogent for our audience. Um, so I'll start by saying selling volatility in a growth slowing grid regime. As you know, we, we think about the world through a regime segmentation lens. There's Goldilocks where growth's accelerating and inflation's decelerating. There's reflation where both growth and inflation are accelerating simultaneously. You can sell as much vol as you want in those regimes. That's where volatility tends to be declining, not only low, but declining um, um, in, in those environments. We're now we're in an environment uh, that's characterized by growth slowing on a trending basis uh, as evidenced by the composite leading indicators. And so right now we're what we call inflation, that's growth decelerating, inflation accelerating. Um, there's also growth, uh, what we call deflation as well, which is both growth and inflation decelerating simultaneously. Do not sell volatility <laughs> in, in either inflation or deflation. There's a central tendency for volatility to rise, for credit spreads to widen, um, and for volatility to just generally be you know, almost an order of magnitude, nearly double um, its average on a realized and implied basis um, relative to Goldilocks and reflation. So that's number one. Um, just a general rule of thought in terms of how to think about risk management based on where we are in the, in the broader rate of change business cycle. Number two, I think it's super critical and very important. This is something you and I talk about all the time on this program. Um, your background, you know, in professional money management, my background, having nice meetings with folks like you, um, which is your portfolio should not ever represent one bet. Even if we're talking about trading this choppy environment, it's not just that my whole entire portfolio has to start reflecting this trading, this shopping environment. You know, yeah. you want to spread out your bets across multiple durations. And so right now you can think about, you know, trying to monetize um, some put exposure in the near term, or certainly trying to, you know, kind of think about playing for a bounce, selling things on a bounce, shorting things on a bounce. And that's sort of some portion of your capital is allocated to that near term, while some portion of your capital is allocated to the medium and longer term views. Um, obviously, you know, we've been uh, quite, quite, um, you know, pretty explicit in our belief that both growth and inflation um, will likely trend lower throughout the balance of 22. I've been very explicit on, on our, our view, our work that suggests that we're very much likely to underperform consensus expectations throughout that process on growth in particular, and we're more than likely to outperform consensus expectations on inflation uh, throughout that process as well, both domestically and abroad. So when you net out those two factors, we're talking about a widening risk premium risk assets, particularly led by higher beta risk assets, and ultimately, we're talking about more narrow risk premiums, more flattening in the Treasury uh, yield curve. And so that's where our medium-term views tend to be focused. What a great answer. So I want to unpack for our listeners yeah. a couple of very important things that you said. 
So it really hits an open nerve when you talk about positions reflecting one probabilistic outcome that you have in mind. It might be your base case, but having a portfolio totally skewed to that, it's one of the typical mistakes that risk takers tend to make. And I'm looking at my own uh, global macro long short positions published on the Macro Compass, where I am up here today, I'm trading pretty okay, but I'm wondering if my trades today reflect too much conviction on my base case, uh, as mm -hmm. basically, you know, I have a flutter, a uh, flutter in the US, I have a short Russell trade, uh, then I have a put on uh, high yield um, uh, bonds, and then basically, you know, a short Bitcoin as well. And the only thing which is against this regime is long Chinese real estate. So you tend to ask yourself, am I, you know, pumping too much into one base case scenario? So what you just said reflects this consideration that people that manage money professionally or that are able to advise people professionally always have in, on top of, the, of their head, how much am I plugging my consensus probabilistic scenario into my trades without considering the tails, right? That's one. And the other thing mm -hmm. that you mentioned as well is selling volatility or being long volatility according to different macro regimes, which is very important. And one of the characteristics of this macro regime, and I want your opinion on that, Darius, is credit spreads. So credit mm -hmm. spreads have started to widen. They reflected both in corporate bond spreads widening. There, have, there has been no high yield deal, primary deal, syndicated deal over the last 13 trading days, if I'm not mistaken, what? which means we're drying up, which means that when the, <laughs> when the investment bank syndicates go around and ask people like you know uh, me or the past me a few months ago, would you be interested in that bond? The answer is a firm no. And therefore, they have to postpone issuance calendar. But it's also being reflected in mortgages. We're seeing 30-year mortgage rates at 4%. And today, we got the news that mortgage applications dropped to the lowest level in over two years. So I want your opinion on the housing market and what do you make of that in 2022 and whether you see potential spillovers as well to the consumer confidence side of the equation. Yeah, no. So we, we already certainly are seeing the spillover to consumer confidence, although I'm not quite sure it's coming from housing uh, at this particular juncture. You know, we're still continuing to see you know, uh, elevated levels of demand at the existing home sales, new home sales. The only issue in the housing market really um, has obviously been unaffordability un and the inability of builders to meet, you know, rising demand. You're seeing building permits, I want to say, uh, hit, a, hit a 15, 16 year high um, in the most recent month, whereas, you know, new starts, like the actual starts, you know, continue to um, slow on a trending basis. So there's a divergence there. I think people just aren't getting what they want and that may be causing some angst, but the real angst, in my opinion, is causing is being caused by the decline in, in, in real disposable personal income. You know, it's something we talked about in the program as well. With you know, if you look at it on a per capita basis, uh, most recent month we got was December. We'll get the January data, the PC data on Friday, I believe. Um, and and the most recent update was minus three percent on an annualized basis. Um, that's a deep contraction in in, on, in real disposable personal income per capita, and that's leading to you know pretty depressed me measures of consumer confidence. Um, obviously, the Michigan survey, you know, where we're getting the sort of you know, consumer buying and conditions for things like vehicles, houses, you know, 20, 30, 40 year lows, bigger indicator where we're getting consumer assessment of their financial uh, situations, whether they be a, a one year look back, that's the lowest we've seen since 2013 or one year four, that's the lowest index level we've seen since 2011. But to me, of all the consumer confidence data points we've gotten in recent weeks and really in recent months thus far in this expansion, the most important number we've seen thus far is the consumer confidence labor differential for the month of January, or sorry, was it? Yeah, for the month of January that came out for the conference board. Um, and that, oh, sorry, this is the month of February, my apologies, I'm getting my months mixed up, <laughs> talk days here. Uh, but for the month of February, the consumer confidence labor differential, and it finally ticked off its cycle peak, which it had been 
kind of hodling at for several months. And the reason that's important is because this indicator pretty much tracks the labor cycle, the broader business cycle, pretty much like a glove. And we've seen nine cycle peaks in this indicator going back to the mid-1960s. And the median decline from the peak of this indicator in S&P 500 point terms is minus 36%. So you typically see a minus 36% drawdown on a median basis for each of those nine times we've seen the business cycle unravel through the lens of this indicator. So that's a real scary data point. Um, one of the more scary data points we've received in recent months. Yeah, and actually, as you said, the fact that real disposable incomes have been shrinking for over a year now to the pace of about 3% year on year yeah. makes um, a potential marginal borrower that buys a house on a mortgage effectively, as mortgage rates have gone up and his real disposable income has gone down, less likely to be able to afford houses at the same price as he was affording them last year, for example. So we might mm -hmm. see uh, perhaps a slowdown um, coming easier. The long-term trend of real estate is actually something different, determined as well by different dynamics. Just published an article on the Macro Compass about that, but it's important for people to understand that if you increase borrowing costs for the private sector and you reduce the real disposable income, then at some point it becomes pretty difficult for them to access credit cheap enough to sustain asset prices at the level where they are, and this has some second round effect or might have some second round effects, and the data point you're talking about is an indication of that. Hey everyone, we're gonna take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, real estate, though, according to people, Darius analysts as well, also has um, a lagged reflection in CPI through basically the rent component. So mm -hmm. um, we were talking before the show about your views on inflation and what the Fed expects inflation to be on the medium projection for 2022, which you kind of disagree on. So do you want to uh, give the audience the reason why do you disagree on that inflation projections? Yeah, no, it's not that we disagree on the direction of travel um, or even really the magnitude of travel to some degree, although it's the it's the levels at every interval um, throughout the year, particularly at these intervals with the summary of economic projections, Fed meetings, where they might actually provide incremental guidance on quantitative tightening and things of that nature. To me, that's that's the scary part, because our forecasts for inflation are persistently higher over the next 12 month time forecast horizon than both the, the, the Fed and the consensus and Bloomberg consensus. So we have the direction of travel going down. It's just not going down fast enough to give the Fed, at least on the inflation front, uh, enough air cover to pivot back in a dovish manner that could support risk assets, um, you know, sort of from mom dot levels. Yeah, and so Darius, can I ask you top of your head, uh, what's your core PC forecast for the end of the year? Yeah, I think it's 2.8%, but don't quote right. me on that, I'll, I'll tweet it out. Okay. Sure, that's fine, but the Federal Reserve median projection for core PC at the end of the year is 2.6%. And so mm -hmm. what Darius is saying, and I think it's paramount important, is that the bond market has priced the reaction function of the Federal Reserve to be seven hikes in 2022 as the median outcome, despite, mm -hmm. or let's say even with their core PC projections being only, quote unquote, 2.6%, which means that 
inflation will be by far the most watched macro data coming over the next few months. It doesn't take one single blip or one single underperformance of PC or CPI numbers against expectations for the Fed to turn. But, you know, mm. for the Fed to turn much more dovish, inflation needs to go on a, on a slowing direction pretty quick and way below their 2.6% core PCE, which, according to Darius, is already relatively dovish as a stand. So it's not going to mm. be that easy for the Fed to, to turn dovish. Is, is that the case, Darius? 100%. Exactly. The Fed expects inflation to go down, and they're telling you that there is a risk that they like at every meeting. Yeah. There's a big hurdle for them to pivot dovishly based on inflation. We have to get core PCE well below 2.6% by the end of the year for them to have any air cover uh, for, through the lens of infl their inflation mandate to pivot dovishly. And this is part of our central base case bear thesis for 2022, which is there's three sort of areas of feedback that financial markets uh, can send information to the Fed or the financial markets in the real economy. One, there's the labor market. You know, what's obviously this headline employment is all these sort of wonky academic statistics that we won't bore you with today. We'll wait for the next jobs report to bore you with those. <laughs> and then so it's very unlikely that we see an unraveling uh, just based on where we are in the broader credit cycle, uh, unraveling quick enough in the in the labor cycle this year to make the Fed pivot dovishly. We just talked about inflation, not only in terms of the direction of travel, but the, the sort of levels relative to the Fed's forecast, very unlikely they get a signal anytime soon within several quarters to the inflation front that they're, you know, need to pivot in a dovish manner. So that leaves the only stool, the only leg of that stool left, three-legged stool is financial conditions. That's the only thing, signal that the Fed is likely to receive this year that they've gone too far with respect to their policy normalization drive. And to me, that's, that's, that is the risk to financial markets, which is the markets themselves are going to have to tell the Fed they've done too much. And that's not exactly a place you want to be as a buy-the-dip bull or someone who's overly levered to sort of high beta risk assets. Um, this is a very, very gross setup. We discussed that in December, I think, at the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It was like about... November, man. It was November. <laughs> no, yeah. about, talking about financial conditions and uh, the time not to be long high beta, but actually financial, financial conditions are indeed the release valve, as you say, are the, the, the mechanism under which the markets might send messages to the Fed. And look at the components of this financial condition index. Real interest rates, they've gone up. Curve has flattened. Um, equity markets, of course, have repriced a bit. Risk premium as well. And credit spreads are now widening. So the cocktail doesn't look extremely good. Of course, we start from extremely loose levels of financial conditions. But the direction of travel has been very clear. And the market has, has been already sending signals to the Federal Reserve. I want to circle back for a second on inflation, because it will be the macro data to watch in 2022. And at Real Vision, there was a very interesting interview between Larry McDonald and David Einhorn, where uh, David had some interesting views on inflation going forward. Let's, let's take a listen. One of the things you, you said a moment ago was that everybody agrees that the inflation is going to come down. And I would say that that may be where the consensus view is, but it's not obvious to me that that's how this has to play itself out. I think there's a range of outcomes, and certainly one of the outcomes is the one that you outlined, but I think there's much more uncertainty than that. And I think some prices obviously seem like they're likely to come down, like used car prices and, and stuff like that, but there's others that, that seem like they could go higher. And there's some embedded inflation in the way that they go about calculating things, that some of the inflation that's already effectively occurred hasn't really... Um, shown through yet, most particularly in real estate, where 
you know, if you if the landlord raises the rent by 15%, which happened in a lot of places last year, they only count the rent increase on the people who are renewing their lease that month. So it takes quite a while for this to flow itself through. And so it's not clear to me that inflation comes down at this point. And, and as the inflation becomes embedded and people expect price increases and expect cost increases and labor expects wage increases and people are granting these things and businesses are granting these things and the expectations are such, I don't know how to handicap it, but the range of outcomes is much wider than what you're, than, than what you're suggesting by saying like everybody agrees that the, um, that the inflation has to come down. The question is, is is how far it has to come down. An interview is available in full for Essential Plus and Protier at the Real Vision website. Go and check it out if you want to hear what uh, David and Larry had to talk about inflation. But Darius also has a comment on this clip. So Darius, what do you want to say? Well, no, so it's more sort of your, uh, your, your what you said uh, to introduce the clip. So I'll start by saying uh, clearly Einhorn is onto something here as it relates to you know the magnitude of the change. We're all sort of in the same camp on the direction of travel, but the magnitude of the change might be what keeps the Fed handcuffed on its policy normalization drive in a year where you know financial conditions could uh, tighten pretty considerably. I've uh, learned a lot from Einhorn over the course of my career, and obviously he's really thinking about the second and third order uh, thinking. That's something I've certainly learned from him. And I would say the second and third order of, of this entire discussion to me is the actual most important things that we need to keep our eye on as investors this year, which is what's the response to gr in growth terms to all this financial tightening and, 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 and fiscal top policy tightening uh, that we're certainly seeing in the U.S. and other economies? You know, is it very likely that growth underperforms consensus expectations? Um, and that's something we continue to believe is the case. Um, and certainly we're likely to start to accumulate data to support that, um, at least according to our models, starting in the month of June, obviously reported in the month of January or sorry, the month of July. Mr. Einhorn had a very interesting comment, in my opinion, in the interview where he said, I'm quoting him, uh, the range of outcomes is much wider than what you're suggesting by saying everybody agrees that inflation has to come down. The question is how mm -hmm. far it has to come down. So here we're talking on, on order of magnitude, as Dario said, and on impulses rather than direction. The direction simply because of base effects is much, much likely to be on the downside, but the magnitude of this drop is paramount important to understand the reaction function of the Fed and the range of outcomes, so the, the probability distribution, basically, of future outcomes is what really matters here, and the tails as well is what markets are interested in. All right, sorry uh, for the boring stuff. Sometimes I take my macro hat and I put it on. It's uh, too much. I want to jump to no, questions. I, I want to jump to questions, guys, because every time Darius is here, you have a gazillion questions, and I can understand why. So let me serve you here. And let's see. So we have Bo from the Real Vision website. He's asking Alf and Darius, with the price wings and the vol, do you see the pros engaged in much shorter duration trades, let's say borderline day trades? Is chasing the vol short term as dangerous as it seems to be, or are there professional ways to do that in a, in a decent manner? Oh, so the, the quick answer is absolutely yes. When the volatility is inversely correlated to uh, any risk manager's holding duration um, and the amount of you know sort of realized volatility that a, a, a security can stomach obviously accelerates uh, or so that a, a security can accumulate you know wides considerably whenever you have a high volatility regime. So in terms of your duration, it just shrinks the whole process. Um, I, I'm sure you would say the same thing. 
Yes, basically the same. And so when you are a macro account or a hedge fund trading these environments, you have actually no other choice rather than shortening your time frames and either reducing your risk or reducing your time frames while trading it. So there are professional ways and professionals are doing that. Mm -hmm. The other question mm -hmm. is on um, high yield spread. So credit spread seems to be an interesting topic for our audience. And Tim is asking, where do you guys see the HYG, so high yield ETF um, drop if we see trouble in junk play out over the coming one to three months? How far can it go? Oh, yeah. So in price terms, I have to get back to you on that. But certainly in, in credit spread terms, if we're talking about rising recession risk, which is something I believe by the end of 2022, we'll be all talking about uh, as, a, as a primary topic. Um, credit spreads can blow out well north of where we are today, which is around 350-ish you know, points over on the, on, the, on the CDX. You know, we can go to 500 over very easily, 6, 7, 800. 800 over is probably you know, the kind of level that'll get the Fed involved on the, on the dovish side in terms of trying to stave off something that looks like a more um, deep business cycle slowdown. But again, I think that we're, we're several steps ahead of way from having to price in that point in the process. Yeah, I agree with Darius. And here I can be a bit more precise simply because I have a trade on. So I know exactly more or less the levels. And I think in credit spreads terms, so today high yield credit spreads are about 370 basis point, give or take, more or less. I entered the trade at about 310 basis point, bought a put on HYG with a strike round about the equivalent of 400 basis point in spread widening. Um, as Darius says, those are levels that are completely consistent with a slowdown growth regime with the Federal Reserve tightening on top of that. But for the mm -hmm. Federal Reserve to pivot, if you make your, your work and you go back into history and you look at investment grade rather than HYG to make it a bit more consistent with the sector of the market, which has a lot of triple Bs priced in there that might be downgraded, which gets the Fed very nervous, generally speaking. We have seen the mm -hmm. Fed pivots back to dovish when investment grade five-year CDS spreads traded about 90 basis point. And we are at about 65 basis point now. So we have widened, but as Darius said already, and I agree with him, we are far away from levels that would trigger the Fed to pivot dovish. So there is still some way to go for financial conditions to test the Federal Reserve from a credit spread perspective in my opinion. Um, does Darius have from the Real Vision website, does Darius think that is a good market for individual stock trading versus broader indices at this stage? What would you prefer trading, Darius, here? Yeah, without question. I mean, look, so the nine, most of your stocks, uh, everyone watching this will probably realize that all their individual stocks are mostly down since going back to the summer of last year. Um, so this clearly is not, uh, people call that a stock picker's market. I think a stock picker market is when the dumbest person in the room can lick their finger and throw, throw money at a, at a ticker. You know, to me, that's a stock picker's market. You don't even have to be a good stock picker. You're just a stock picker. To me, this is a much more macro-driven market in terms of the, the narrowness of sector and style factor leadership. When we run our dispersion analysis, uh, which tries to track institutional flows, we looked at proxies for institutional flows, um, sort of hot money flows, month-on-month -month type flows. And, you know, we only have three or four sectors out of the sort of 50 to 60 sectors, style factors, industries, and FANG names that we track on a daily basis that are actually showing positive um, um, sort of flows on a month-on-month -month basis. And so it's telling you there's a real narrowness of, of, of breadth, a real narrowness of leadership, and it tends to be, it's quite concentrated, ironically, pro, in a pro-cyclical manner. And you're seeing things like energy, airlines, leisure, hospitality, high beta, high debt, those kinds of sectors, style factors, industries really leading to the upside. And that, to me, goes to a dynamic that we've been discussing in the program as well, which is this post-Omicron bounce view. You know, so the market is having this tug of war between geopolitical concerns, 
bad tightening on one side of the tug of war and so one side of the rope and the other side of the rope, it's, yeah, but the economy is doing fine and it might actually get better in the near term, right? And right now that rope is obviously today, you know, the geopolitical concerns of Fed tightening are, are taking the cake, but, you know, it's not necessarily uh, true in sector and South Fed to leadership terms. 2017 or 2019, you can blindfold yourself and throw darts like a monkey and you're going to get a ticker that becomes green day after day. 2018 oh. and 2022, you, this is actually a macro market. So you need to read yeah. the cross currents, connect the dots and make your risk management macro analysis before entering positions, I would say. So I totally agree with Darius on that as well. We're going to take another quick break to hear words from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. We should take, I guess, another question before we leave, which is from Adam, Real Vision, Real Vision website again. He's asking, do you see any signs of rates topping out, or do you think what we're seeing is a pullback in an uptrend? The developed international value is actually doing holding up fairly well. Uh, that's another, uh, basically the second question from Adam as well. Do you think that ends up catching down the rest of the market, the developed international value index? Or is that a sign that rates had higher with inflation expectation and the dollar lower? Yeah, so we, we certainly are starting to see the end of the beginning, or sorry, the beginning of the end of the rates rising trade, or the, 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 yeah, the beginning of the end of the rates rising trade, the end of the beginning of the short bonds trade. Or sorry, uh, the, the, ignore everything I just said there. I'm an idiot. My apologies. Uh, I, have, <laughs> I do have <laughs> momentary lapses in, in intelligence. Uh, but anyway... My, uh, my point is, is that, you know, we're starting to see, you know, we, you and I talked about this offline, which is curve inversion. When you look at forward markets, um, either on, 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 on uh, term premium or curve inversion, when you look at forward markets in terms of overnight index swaps, uh, which are, you know, sort of uh, are contracts that are um, based on the benchmark policy rate. To me, that curve inversion is a clear cut signal from the market that the sort of growth, the, the impact of Fed tightening, of fiscal tightening, of ba steepening base effects, all these dynamics, you know, declining real uh, income, all these sort of things are starting to accumulate in a way that is deleterious for the medium-term growth outlook. And so once the medium-term growth outlook is start to get, starts to get broadly priced in across risk assets, it's very likely that that inverse covariance that we've typically seen with respect to stocks and bonds and, and risk assets in general relative to, to uh, cash and bonds and the dollar, we start to see that co inverse co correlation pick up. Um, right now, we're not quite at that point in that process because, again, the growth dynamic is still fine. As long as growth is either hanging in there or accelerating as it should be into the spring as a function of the post-Omicron bounce, it's very unlikely that you see that inverse correlation tighten. So we're, we're sort of waiting on that final shoe to drop. Yeah, and as always, my answer to this, the question comes from my positioning. So in rates, instead of having an outright position on rates, I have a flat position for a flatter curve, which means... Mm -hmm. Theoretically, I don't care the direction of the curve flattening, if it's bear flattening or bull flattening, as long as it flattens, I make money. And so I've been asking myself, is it time to, to basically cut the short two-year part of the trade and just leave the long 10-year part of the trade there to become outright bullish on the bond market? And I can't help myself at the moment because I just think the risk reward of a flatter curve is easier to achieve at this point in the cycle 
than an outright long bond trade. For an outright long bond trade, you need to either see a capitulation in risk assets where actually this inverse correlation that is talking about starts to play in again, or on the contrary, those are the first signs basically that either the Fed is getting so restrictive at the front end that the curve inverts even spot and not only forward, but it literally starts to invert very, very quick, or alternatively, that the Federal Reserve is capitulating on the dovish side, and therefore you basically um, start as a first move perhaps to come in in rates, and then you can bull steepen after that. But we are not at these stages yet, so I find the flattener to be the easiest and, and uh, purest expression in rates term of this macro environment. That is... Um, <laughs> 100%. Matter of fact, I have one, one final thing. Uh, so 100% agree with what you just said. If I can add one final uh, comment to, to this whole discussion, this is the latest, according to the unemployment rate, with the headline unemployment rate, data going all the way back to the early 1970s, since we have the Fed funds uh, data. This is the latest in the business cycle the Fed has ever started to tighten monetary policy. So we should expect that all these typical things that we expect to see as a function of the Fed tightening monetary policy widening risk premia, tighter financial conditions, slowing economic activity, you know, starting to see disruptions in the labor market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We should expect to see them sooner than later, right? We, we've, we've, we've exhausted a lot of the organic growth potential in this, in this economy uh, as a function of waiting so late to start tightening. Um, and so again, it's just, it, to me, it just feels like the whole thing is happening faster, uh, particularly with respect to curve flattening turbocharged business cycles and monetary policy reactions as a response to a uh, very unusual uh, pandemic, obviously a recession-induced, very short recession-induced pandemic, extremely quick fiscal spending reaction that has also accelerated and boosted the business cycle on the way up and now on the impulse of growth decelerating on the way down. It's all happening at a very quick pace. So we need, it's, it's paramount important to follow macro and understand how to connect the dots on a weekly basis, guys, and that's why we are here to try and help you. Thanks for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Darius, as always, a total pleasure to have you here. Um, as you uh, are a Real Vision viewer, you might want to work as well with Real Vision. Real Vision is hiring. You can go and check it out at realvision.com slash careers in their website. And uh, Maggie will be here tomorrow with Thomas Thornton. Uh, so dial back in, conversation continues on the exchange. Darius, thank, thank you again for this uh, nice Real Vision Daily Briefing. So always a pleasure. Right. Pleasure's all mine, friend. This is awesome. Catch you next time. Yeah. Ciao, guys. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.